Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, welcoming you back to new books in military history. Each week, we choose a new book we find interesting and interview the author. And this week, we've selected Gregory A. Daddis's recent work, No Sure Victory, Measuring U.S. Army Effectiveness and Progress in the Vietnam War. Now, ask any student or aficionado of the Vietnam War for a top ten list of the cultural artifacts that were unique to the war, and chances are the phenomenon of body counts as a tool for measuring success in the field will come up. Indeed, the use of casualty metrics, while not the sole means of calculating progress in this unconventional war, was one of the Army's most heralded and subsequently most criticized assessment tools. Taking its place alongside more esoteric metrics, such as gauging security on the basis of population resettlement, calculating the the denial of strategic space by measuring raw acreage of defoliated land, and estimating anticipated casualties on the basis of ordnance tonnage expended on a defined area, body counts became the most visibly broken method employed by the Pentagon during the war. Even now, nearly 50 years after the war began, historians continue to debate the effectiveness of such metrics and how they did or did not accurately portray the course of the conflict. Into this debate comes Greg Dadis with No Sure Victory, and he takes direct aim at the questions of how a technologically advanced army measures progress and success in an asymmetrical conflict. Recognizing that data collection efforts frequently overwhelmed any effort at proper and judicial analysis, Dadis considers how the quest for reliable metrics of success affected the conduct of operations in the field. In the end, No Sure Victory is not only a critical addition to the historiography of the Vietnam War, It also presents a valuable addendum for students and practitioners of unconventional warfare alike. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books in Military History. Today I'm pleased to welcome Colonel Gregory A. Dadis, author of the recent book, No Sure Victory, Measuring U.S. Army Effectiveness and Progress in the Vietnam War. This extremely well-received book has been welcomed as a long-overdue assessment of one of the most controversial aspects of the Vietnam War, namely the use of body counts and other empirical measurements to gauge success against the North North Vietnamese Army and the armed NLF. Colonel Dadis is currently on the history faculty of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Now, by way of full disclosure, I must also note that I share intellectual pedigree with Colonel Dadis, and that we both took courses together at Temple University under the late Russell Wigley. Well, that was quite some time ago. Greg, it's been a while. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for having me. I very much appreciate it. So, and uh, I think fondly of uh, Russell Wigley, without a doubt. He's a terrific. Uh, Terrific professor and a great academic experience. So, yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I consider myself <clears throat> fortunate having worked with him. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Saying that, congratulations again on your work. Thank you. And, of course, your career since we met. Um, what prompted you to pursue this project? Um, it's interesting. I, uh, it was at, uh, I was on the, the faculty at, uh, in West Point uh, on, in the history department, and and uh, from 2004 to 2006, and we, uh, the department was asked to do some brief historical studies that could be used for the, the multinational command in Iraq um, and different aspects of unconventional warfare. And I was part of that project and had done a study of the French experience in Indochina and how um, French officers in the French command as they were going uh, through the, the French Indochina War in the uh, late 1940s and early 1950s were approaching the different religious sects inside of Indochina and how they were trying to navigate through um, 
these different religious sects as they were also conducting military operations. And so we sent a, a report up to the command, and, and a, a few months later, we, we received a, a request from a special forces group commander that was returning to Iraq for then his second tour, asking if he if we had any um, insights on how to measure progress in an unconventional environment. Um, and at first, I, I thought it was kind of uh, kind of odd that you know you have this special forces group commander. He's going to Iraq for his second tour. Um, certainly, he's got to know how to measure progress in this type of environment and measure effectiveness of his unit. Um, and, and and interestingly enough, the more I started doing some um, historic historiographical background um, to try and answer his question, I, I found that there was very little um, in the literature, uh, especially on the Vietnam War, on on how the Army tried to approach this very difficult pro- process. My my understanding, just from reading the secondary literature, was the Army went to Vietnam. It, it used body counts, as you mentioned in the opening. Uh, and that was really it. And what I found uh, was it was much more difficult than, than that um, and much more convoluted. And uh, and this officer, I think, was struggling for all the right reasons, that it's, it's just incredibly hard, I think, today and as well as the 1960s, um, to, to figure out how well you're doing in this type of environment. Right. Well, I mean, you open the book as well with a brief, you know, but very evocative portrait of how American forces assessed victory in the Second World War. Right. You know, by way of comparison with the different metrics that were developed decades later. Right. And it, it, what's interesting, I think, about that is it, that type of progress in the conventional environment, and I'm not advocating that conventional warfare is, is any less difficult um, or more difficult than unconventional. I think each has their, their own certain challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but progress in that type of environment is, is just tangible. I mean, and everyone that's, that's observing the battlefield can, can see how well the Army is doing because geography plays a very important role as a scorecard, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, the enemy knows if they're retreating or, or advancing. The, the civilian population does. The, the, the media does. Um, it's, it's just very tangible to everyone that's, that's watching military operations unfold. And because you don't have um, that scorecard in, in an area war like an unconventional conflict, it's, it's much more difficult for, for folks to discern how well armies are doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that raises an issue, too, I would think, historically, as, as we focus again on Vietnam exclusively, mm-hmm. you know, is it fair for us to perhaps argue or note that the primary cognitive dissonance for officers with a shared experience in both wars wasn't the immediate application of tactics or the size of force, but exactly the point you raise about how to precisely assess progress and in turn translate it into success? Right. And I, I certainly think there is a bit of that dissonance going on. I, I think, um, but I also think we need to be careful about. Um, with the argument that American officers and soldiers who had experience in uh, World War II and Korea simply didn't learn in their new environment in Vietnam, and, and that's been advanced by um, some some more recent historians that the Army wasn't a learning organization, if you will, in Vietnam. And I, I think that's a bit overstated. Um, certainly, I think the Army officers of the time, uh, I mean, Westmoreland, as an example, is commander of uh, Military Assistance Command from 64 to 68, um, has um, distinguished service in World War II and Korea as well. Um, so this is very new to him. I think it's very new to um, the majority of the officers um, who have, for the most part, very little experience in unconventional operations. Um, but I think we, we need to be careful that the Army in Vietnam didn't try to to learn about uh, unconventional operations and didn't try to learn how to, to measure their progress and effectiveness because um, I, I just think that's a, a bit too um, um, too reductive, if you will. It, it is, and I will come in a few moments to some questions about the efforts the Army tried to undertake before full mm-hmm. escalation to, to remedy that. Right. Um, you know, you cite Scott Gardner's work yes. in your introduction, you know, talking about the issue of uh, the failure of identifying dominant indicators, right. as it were, and how that translated into misperception, and in turn, bad operational decision-making. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? 
I can. Uh, Scott's done some interesting work, I think, on, on just in general how to measure the effectiveness of the military organization. And, and um, his thesis is that what, what's difficult, especially in modern wars, is, is for officers to find dominant indicators. And really what it is, I think, is separating the chief, uh, the chaff from the wheat when it comes to identifying um, you know, what's most important in terms of, of how well you're doing or assessing how well you're doing because modern warfare is so complex. You have uh, this um, possibility of being just overwhelmed with information. And uh, and the, the challenge, is, as Gardner uh, argues, is that an organization like an army in, in a time of war has to identify those indicators that, that are dominant, those indicators that best... Um, um, or, or best assess how well you're doing and how well you're making progress. And and, and he also points out, I think this is important, that, that progress is not the same as effectiveness, that your measurements for progress may not be the same measurements of, um, that ascertain how effective you are as an organization. So he separates those two, which are, I think are important. Yeah, because you, you argue later that they actually can work across purposes. Exactly, exactly. Um, that you can be, and I think um, in, in the case of Vietnam, that's exactly what happened for the American Army, that um, as an example, there were military operations that were incredibly effective, um, and yet they were working at cross purposes with some of the larger goals of pacifying the countryside. Uh, so you had these very effective military operations, um, but the in the wake of that, you're causing um, destruction of the, the social and political landscape. You're causing uh, a whole host of refugees and. Uh, uh, so the effectiveness in one area is who's working across purposes with another. Um, and I, I think that's an important part of understanding um, the difficulties in this type of environment. Um, and I, I think the other thing that's important to note is um, we like to teach here at West Point that, uh, that the Vietnam War should be really seen as a mosaic. That's what, what what's happening in one area of Vietnam is not what's happening in another. So the Central Highlands, as an example... Mm-hmm. The war there looks very different uh, than the war in the Mekong Delta or the war along the DMC. And that mosaic complicates uh, that search for what Gardner called the, the dominant indicators because a dominant indicator in the Central Highlands may be completely irrelevant to, in, um, to the Mekong Delta area. And so I think that, that problematizes this search for dominant indicators that um, officers um, um, to really try to, uh, um, to gain in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By 1965, you know, the point of American escalation, you know, mm-hmm. there, there were, of course, ample case studies and theoretical work on insurgency. Mm-hmm. How did MACV, and I guess by extension, you know, the Pentagon, uh, miss out on this trend in small brush fire wars? In terms of assessing the war itself? Or it's in terms of assessing, assessing the nature of the conflict and right. um, how to, to prosecute it. Um, I, I would actually uh, argue that they didn't, um, and, and one of the, um, and the things that I, I try and challenge a little bit in this work, um, and I, I think where I'm, I'm heading in, in the future with my own research, is that I actually think the Army um, understood better than the literature would, would lead us to believe mm-hmm. um, uh, on unconventional warfare. Um, if you look at um, some of Westmoreland's guidance and his concept of operations in, in the time period you just mentioned, the summer, spring and summer of 1965, the Johnson administration is looking to send ground troops to, to South Vietnam. Um, they're actually pretty insightful. Um, Westmoreland actually will visit Malaya, um, which was the scene of um, a successful counterinsurgency operation um, conducted by the British. Um, he, uh, as superintendent of West Point from 62 to 64, he um, he, he makes counterinsurgency a um, mandatory um, part of the curriculum here at West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, he's reading about it. He's uh, and I think understands it a little bit better than most will give him credit for. I think the problem is is what becomes one of implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was, I've been pretty that... impressed with Westmoreland in terms of his understanding um, uh, of the problem. That it, it's it's not simply a military. Um, problem. It, it will be won ultimately by the South Vietnamese, and and, and even so, less by the government, and, uh, or less than uh, by the military, and more by the government. He understands that this is a war that will be fought among the people, and will be won or lost in the villages. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think we 
uh, I would argue we, we, we might give Westmore a little bit more credit than, say, his recent biographer has given. <laughs> <laughs> He's not had a very favorable press, really, since the end of the war, to be honest. No, not at all. Not at all. And I, I think that's part of, um, I think, the Army in particular and the nation in general, in general struggling with how, to, how best to explain um, American defeat in Vietnam. And, um, and we... we, we we have a hard time, I, I think, um, giving credit to the enemy, and, and we prefer to to make arguments that it, it was our strategy that was at fault, and that we, if we had just had a better strategy or a better general, we would have won the war because that way um, we we still can, um, you know, we can take the blame, but also there's there's a possibility that well, if we had just done things better, we would have won. Right. Well, I mean, it kind of also ducks the question of whether or not, and again, coming back to the point you raised about implementation, the problems that we face in implementing Westmoreland's counterinsurgency or pacification strategy, does that also reside within the culture of the Army itself? Mm-hmm. You know, and to what extent the institutional, um, in, in institutional inertia plays a role? I think it does a little bit. Um, again, though, I think we need to be careful of arguing that you know this constraining culture um, explains the outcome. But but certainly, I think officers are extremely frustrated with um, the pacification side of the um, of the fight. And pacification at the time was defined as as trying to find linkages. Um, and strengthen the relationship between the, the local population and the, and the central government. And American officers are just incredibly frustrated with this mission. Um, and, and in large part, I think it's because they're having difficulties assessing how they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, words like security, words like control are, are extremely relative. Um, and you had a very perceptive correspondent um, during the war, ask, you know, how secure is secure when, when these officers are bragging that they can move anywhere in their province by day, but they're reluctant to drive outside of the capital after dark. Um, and you, you get a sense of this frustration um, throughout a lot of the officers' memoirs and, uh, and oral history interviews that they've done. Um, that assessing control, assessing pacification was, was very, very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Of course, you, you mentioned as well that you've done work on the French experience mm-hmm. before 1956. Yes. And, of course, you know, they you know, learned the hard way. Right, That's very right. nice that you're talking about. Right. Um, did we pick up on this? I mean, obviously Westmoreland is reading he is. the French right. experience. But how uh, deep does that filter into Mac V? Um, slightly. <laughs> and the, the Army will... Uh, gets criticized, and in one sense, I think a, a bit rightfully so, uh, for for not um, looking at the French experiences as deeply as they might have. Um, I mean, one officer quips in a in an article, I, I think it was in the mid 1960s, um, something like, you know, the, the French haven't won since Napoleon, so what can we learn from them? Uh, so I, <laughs> I think we need to be careful with that a little bit. Um, but they are reading. Um, David Galula, who's still, whose counterinsurgency book is still um, highly regarded today in, in our military and, and often cited. Um, they're reading Bernard Fall, who's a, um, an expert of the French uh, Indochina Street, Street Without Street. Joy, is uh, on many reading lists, and, and Bernard Fall will come and uh, give lectures to um, the War College and, and the Command and General Staff College. Um, and again, I, I think what's problematic here is the French experience in both Algeria and French Indochina doesn't leave the Americans with anything useful in terms of counterinsurgency metrics and indicators. Um, so Galula, as an example, um, will talk about political organization as the, at the grassroots level um, being an important indicator. Um, but, but again, that's really hard to measure, right? I mean, how do you measure political organization for a culture that you're unfamiliar with, um, for a culture um, for which you don't speak the language? Um, well, that in a peasant-based economy. Exactly. And, and I would argue we, we have a hard time assessing political organization in our own country today. Um, so I, it's very difficult, I think, for Americans at the time to do that in in, um, um, in Vietnam. And... Um, 
So I, I think they're they're looking at the French experience, but when it comes to, to measuring progress and effectiveness environment, there, there's just not a lot there that, that that seems useful. Bernard Fall is an example. We'll talk about uh, measuring administrative control, and, and he felt at the time that if you looked at um, an accurate reporting of assassinations on top of uh, Viet Cong taxation, that that could give you some sense of administrative control. Mm-hmm. Um, or whether voters were, were taking elections seriously, um, uh, that kind of thing. But again, I, I think Americans just found that to be a bit too subjective and, and then leaned more towards concrete metrics that they felt that they could tabulate and, and report up. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a sounding, you know, um, reductionist or, or generalistic. You know, what exactly was the state of our counterinsurgency doctrine prior to 1965? Um Actually, I, I think it's uh, it, it's not bad. The um, um, a- Andrew Bertel has done some just terrific work. He's a historian at the Center of Military History and has a um, just a two volume work on counterinsurgency doctrine. That's excellent. Um, but the uh, the two manuals, um, the, the main manuals, the counter guerrilla um, counterinsurgency manual, um, was field manual thirty one sixteen. It was. Um, went through a, a number of different modifications, but there was a 1963 version that was updated in 1967. Um, and again, I think in that in that doctrine, there's a realization that, that this type of warfare is not solely a military conflict. Um, it's a political conflict as well, that you have to, to get the local indigenous forces um, on board with what you're trying to accomplish. Um, it talks about population security as being necessary for political reform, something I think that we today continue to believe. Um, that's a key assumption, I think, that we make in our own counterinsurgency doctrine today that was mirrored in the doctrine of the 60s, that um, if you could secure the population, um, once that foundation was set, then you could build political reforms and achieve some type of economic development that would help for pacification efforts. Um, so I, it was, a, I think, a fairly well-thought-out doctrine. Um, again, the problem is, is one of implementation, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking to the issues of implementation, then, I mean, a hallmark of our literature has been the, the issues of misperception and failed analysis on our part of, ZM, of the ZM regime. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I guess it's a two-part question I have is, first, do you see this as being a factor in shaping our counterinsurgency doctrine on the ground in Vietnam? And secondly, was there really an alternative? Yeah, um, that, that's a great question. And certainly when Diem is assassinated in, in 1963, um, just weeks before President Kennedy is assassinated, um, there, there's a sense that that really is one of the turning points of, of the conflict. Um, and what you have after ZM's uh, death is this kind of revolving door of, of um, political leaders in, in Saigon um, that is causing immense frustrations with the U.S. Embassy, um, certainly causing political instability in Saigon, if not the entire country. Um, Hanoi and, and the National Liberation Front both kind of see this as an opportunity now to... Um, um, uh, hopefully to see this through. Mm-hmm. And, and really one of the reasons, I think, why Johnson ultimately has to make the decision to send ground troops is because unlike um, the Truman or Eisenhower-Kennedy administrations, which were all able to kind of push this problem off to the next administration, there's a belief by 1965 that if, if the United States does not act in the aftermath of Jim's, um coup and assassination, then um, South Vietnam will, in fact, fall to the communists. Um, and I think that has a, a direct impact because um, the political instability that follows Diem's death um, really causes, I think, the Americans to um, to take center stage and, and almost push the South Vietnamese to the background because there is this overwhelming fear that if we don't act now, South Vietnam is going to fall. And if that happens, then there will be irreparable damage to American foreign policy and prestige and, and, and the underpinnings of containment will, will kind of fall this, the, you know, the whole domino theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the ground, I really think what you see is um, this, this pol- these political machinations and, and instability that follows him's death, almost forcing the Americans to take charge of the war. At least that's that's what they feel they have to do to, to save South Vietnam. Um, so I think that's an, that's where you kind of see the um, 
almost the hyper implementation of, of counterinsurgency doctrine, where Americans um, just have to save have to save the South, and, and the only people that can save it are the Americans. Right, right. You know, the title of one of your early chapters is um, "Measurements Without Objectives." Right, where we begin to talk about the the issue of, of how to measure success. Mm-hmm. I, I love that short phrase because it really catches the dilemma of this conflict, which victory was tied to this big statistical formula and uh-huh. some clear objectives. But yet, in the Kennedy and the early Johnson years, despite this ambiguity, Pentagon planners become even more wedded to quantify statistics, even at the same time as they're, as they're uh, criticizing it. My question, though, is it really fair to lay the blame for this system, as some have done, not on uh, Westmoreland, but on Robert McNamara. Right, yeah. You know, uh, it seems like the entire national security establishment was was obsessed with this. It is, and, um, and you know, systems analysis is really taking taking hold in the early 1960s. Um, it, there's this feeling, certainly among McNamara, who's um, who served as a really a uh, a research analyst or a, a systems analyst in World War II under Curtis LeMay in the, in the U.S. Air Force in the Pacific, and then obviously goes on to to Harvard and um, and Ford Motor Company, um, and and there's this, this deep seated belief that that systems analysis systems analysis can can help the the Department of Defense solve problems, um, and you know McNamara's quip that uh, everything that that was measurable should in fact be measured um, is certainly part of the pressure I think that's placed on the U.S. Army um, to to measure everything that they feel can be measured. Um, and yeah, what's interesting though is that um, part of this, I, I I think, is a bit generational too, because a lot of the younger officers um, in their 1960s are writing about systems analysis, are writing about the use of computers to help um, um, military op planning and uh, and assessing. Um, and, and there seems to be a bit of a, um, a divergence between senior officers uh, who have this experience in World War II and believe that, you know, commander's viewpoint of what's on the ground is, or the commander who's on the ground, that viewpoint is actually what's most important. Right. Um, that a commander's feel of how the battle is going is what's most important. Then the systems analysis just kind of gets in the way. And they're actually worried that it's going to uh, subvert a commander's ability to, to render a judgment on how well the war is going. You know, Look, you've got to believe the commander. Don't believe a computer. Right. Um, but you have a number of younger officers that are, are looking at these new tools, saying we can use these. This can actually help the commander rather than than replace him. Um, um, so I think the army, some aspects of the army, have kind of embraced the systems analysis technique that um, McNamara and his whiz kids, as they're um, as they're known, um, are, are advocating. Um, because they think it can help them in this type of environment. Um, but certainly, I think you're right. I think McNamara, Mac, McNamara's approach to measuring everything that's measurable puts an immense amount of pressure on, on the U.S. Army as an organization to, to do just that. Right, right. What's the initial response to this amongst ground commanders? In terms of the pressure being placed on them? Yes. Um, uh, fairly dutiful, I guess. <laughs> they, uh, um, there is a uh, initial directive that MACV, the Military Assistance Command of Vietnam, puts out in, in late 1963. Uh, it's, it's Directive 88, and it's, it's really just a laundry list of, of indicators. Um, it's really the, the first attempt to to um, to get at measuring progress on a fairly regular basis, and um, and it really is a laundry list. I mean, it talks about, uh, lays out measurements for force ratios and incident rates and air sorties and weapon losses and security of base areas. I mean, just on and on and on and on. Um, and what's interesting, at least what I found, was that um, that, that basic 100-point um, laundry list really stays in effect throughout the war. And, and what happens is you just get reports that are added on and added on to that rather than you know, the question being asked, is this the right thing we should be measuring? Um, so by the time you get to early 1964, um, there are over 500 um, U.S. and South Vietnamese reports that are that are trying to measure the progress and effect, uh, progress of the war. 
and what I try and argue in the book is that that data collection is really becoming an end unto itself. And this is even before American ground troops are sent to Vietnam. But uh, I just thought that was amazing that (laughs) before we even have combat troops on the ground, uh, we've got 500 reports that are trying to measure progress. That's just amazing. And, you know, even amongst the whiz kids who are so in love with with the idea of computer analysis, it strikes me that even that amount of data is almost beyond the capacity of existing hardware to manage. It is. And even even to assess and and to do something with it, right? Just just one report, the, the handheld evaluation system, which was supposed to help measure pacification, um, it's this list of, of roughly 18 indicators that are suppo- we're supposed to assess a Hamlet security and development. So yeah. a young American advisor would be asked to, to look at the security piece of his village or Hamlet, which would be you know the Viet Cong military activities or subversive activities um, or the friendly security capabilities. And then he would also be asked to look at development factors like um, health, education, welfare, uh, economic development. Again, somewhat problematic for an American trying to assess, say, the, the health and education status of a Vietnamese village. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, it doesn't speak the language. Um, but this one report, the Hamlet Evaluation System, uh, generated a monthly average of nine, 90,000 pages of reports a month. One report. Um, so that that report, which was supposed to assess the roughly two thousand villages and thirteen thousand hamlets in South Vietnam, a month generated ninety thousand pages. Um, and so, what do you do with that? Um, you know, how do you actually? What do you do with ninety pages of reports? And how do you look for trends? And and how do you and analyze that? Um, it, it just became um, almost ludicrous. I certainly think so. My gosh. <laughs> yeah, after after the escalation, because we're, we're going to move ahead a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, after escalation begins in the summer of 1965, mm-hmm. we have American forces first directly engaging the NVA right. and NLF regular forces throughout the Central Highlands. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, again, tactical success in and around Pleiku, Yadrang, and other places. Right. But that MACV draws the wrong conclusions about not only the viability of the air mobile concept, mm-hmm. but the validity of statistical modeling overall. And I think right. this goes back to our early exchange about effectiveness versus strategy. Right. Can you detail the, the experience here? Right. So um, the, 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 really the, the famous first battle, if you will, between American forces and, and North Vietnamese regulars, it's uh, um, uh, became famous with the uh, we the book in the movie We Were Soldiers, uh, Once and Young. Um, that occurs in November 1965. It's the first time that uh, American forces are combating uh, North Vietnamese regulars. There's a concern that Westmoreland has that um, because the North Vietnamese have actually decided to send regular forces into South Vietnam, this is no longer just an insurgency that... Um, that the South Vietnamese and Americans are now facing both an insurgent uh, threat and a regular army threat, Mm -hmm. that this regular army uh, operating in the Central Highlands would actually, um, if if they were successful, would would cut South Vietnam in half. And so that's why the 1st Cavalry Division is sent to the Central Highlands to to combat this. And uh, there's this famous battle that occurs in Yadrang, how Moore's troopers kill um, roughly 630, 640 North Vietnamese soldiers. Um, they estimate, and that's an important word, estimate another 1,200 or so casualties. Um, uh, Moore's troops um, suffered 75 killed, 121 wounded. Um, and it seems that, that Americans now are, are just as effective as they were in World War II in Korea, that they, they can confront the enemy on the battlefield, that they can use um, metrics that are that are congenial to the organization, that, you know, more can go go, uh, go outside um, the engagement area and count up bodies. And uh, and that seems to be proof that the, that the Army is as effective today as it was back in the 1950s in Korea or back, back in the 1940s in, uh, in World War II. And, uh, and Westmoreland will call it, you know, an unprecedented victory. The problem is, is that um, that really, that unprecedented victory and the, the body counts that were, were raked up in this, uh, racked up in this, in this battle, um, it, it seemed to, to cover up some, some issues 
with the air mobile concept that um, if you have a helicopter-borne unit that goes into an area, kills the enemy, and then leaves, the enemy ultimately is still in control of that area. So you may be effective in terms of killing the enemy, but are you making any progress in terms of getting at the enemy's infrastructure, getting at the enemy's political infrastructure. And a large part of the Army will, will focus in on, on the kill aspect of it rather than what follows. Um, now, I, I don't believe that that happens all the time, um, and I don't believe the body counts are the sole metric um, that's used in Vietnam by any means, and I think that's where the literature is a bit off in, in Vietnam. Um, but then there's a lot of pressure, I think, to, to be like Hal Moore, um, you know, if, if you're a young lieutenant colonel that is uh, a battalion commander and, and the president calls this battle uh, an unprecedented victory, then it, it seems like you would want to be just like Hal Moore. Sure. Um, so there's there's pressure in that sense as well. What I what I try and argue in the book is, uh, at least from the body count perspective, there's there's a lot of very different pressures when it comes to this aspect of, of the war. Um, you do have McNamara, as you mentioned, putting pressure to... Um, um, on the army to to state progress, you do have commanders who do feel like they've got their own pressure to perform because certainly in a time of war, um, it's an opportunity for promotions, for medals, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this very a, a very individual um, pressure as well. Oftentimes, the search and destroy missions that the army conducts are very frustrating. They're they're fighting an elusive enemy. Oftentimes, these long um, um, patrols in the in the jungle come up empty-handed, so when they finally do make contact with the enemy, um, there's this almost visceral need to, to make contact and, and, and get a high body count. As one soldier said, you know, um, he said, there's, there's nothing like a confirmed kill that you want more. Uh, you know, everybody back at the time is going to look at you with envy that you're going to score a touchdown in front of the hometown fans, so there's, a, there's almost this individual pressure as well, mm-hmm. uh, which I just found fascinating. Um, and even commanders are, are kind of linking body counts with 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 morale. One soldier, or one officer actually even said that you know that we have to get to get a high body count. Morale will go up again. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's amazing that you don't see, or well, maybe there was, and I'm I'm not seeing it. Or from my viewpoint, greater objection as the war continues after 1966. Mm-hmm. Greater objection to the use of body counts. No, I don't. I don't think there is. I, I know um, there's been an argument. Uh, Louis Sorley, who's a biographer of Kerry Abrams, will say that when Abrams takes over MACB in, in 1968, that he kind of throws out the body count. Um, and actually, I, I just I, I haven't found that in my own research. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, if you look at Operation Speedy Express, which is, was conducted by the Ninth Infantry Division in late '68, early '69, um, it's very much a body count driven. Operation Julian Ewell, who's a division commander, uh, is is nicknamed uh, the Butcher of the Macon. Um, so it, that is very much an organization that is um, driven by body counts and kill ratios. Um, and you do have the uh, the American Army under Abrams that is using body counts to assess how well the South Vietnamese Army is doing as we we start the process of Vietnamization of turning over. Uh, the war effort whole cloth to the Army of South Vietnam. Um, and that, that provides just another complexity of this problem of measuring progress. That if you're going to turn the war over to local forces, how do you measure whether they're able to fully take over the war or not? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think this uh, the use of body counts, although not the, the, the sole use, uh, indicator of progress, was, was used certainly throughout the war. Right. Right. At what point do civilians observers begin to reject body counts as a flawed instrument? Um, I, I think fairly early on. In fact, I, I think uh, I would even argue that uh, folks and uh, officials in the in the Johnson administration kind of question the the military aspect of it and whether that's going to be enough to see it through. Um, my research my research has shown me that even Robert McNamara, who often kind of gets blamed for um, almost really for the war itself. Um, as early as 1966, uh, even in the aftermath, the I Drang was was questioning whether military operations, whether body counts were were going to be enough to to help win the war, mm-hmm. um, because there was just so much social and political upheaval in the um, 
in South Vietnamese society, as he called it, you know, there was there was rot in the fabric, mm-hmm. and if there's rot in the fabric of the socio-political um, infrastructure of South Vietnam, then how could you um, build a winning strategy on top of that? Um, and then certainly, I think you get a number of um, very thoughtful uh, journalists. Um, um, insightful journalists, Jonathan Schell, um, yeah. Halberstan, Neil Sheehan, and others that are, are looking at the war and questioning, um, you know, the, how well metrics are being used. Jonathan Schell is an example who's reporting on the, uh, destruction of, of Ben Sook and Operation Cedar Fall. This is the famous, um, operation in which, uh, an Air Force major said, you know, we had to destroy the village to save it. Um, Jonathan Schell reports that, you know, it, it's not very surprising that you, we've got these bomb damage assessment reports, but there's no blanks for homes destroyed or civilians killed. So, um, and this is in 1967, mm-hmm. early 1967. So I do think you have a number of journalists um, that are questioning um, whether prog- or effectiveness in, in the military side is actually leading to progress or, or in fact, undermining it. Mm-hmm. Let's move ahead to 68. Uh-huh. Uh, Kind of have to get to Tet, and <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, obviously the Tet Offensive knocks American and ARVN forces off balance mm-hmm. and reveals the fallacies in statistical modeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I could quote you directly, uh, you conclude that, and beginning the quote, 1968 ended not only with a stalemate in the war, but a stalemate in thinking about the war. Mm-hmm. End quote within MACV itself. Right. How did Tet? And the public's response to the offensive and its aftermath affect MACV's internal stability and self-perception going forward. Right. Um, I would argue there's a lot of there, there's just continuity. Uh, there's more continuity than than change. And I know I'm I'm at odds with um, with folks like you know, Lewis Sorley and, and some others who say that there was this big break that when when. Um, Johnson comes on TV in, in 1960, in March of 1968 and says he's not going to run for re-election. And soon after that, Westmoreland is moved to the chief of staff of the Army, and Abrams becomes commander of MACV in, in mid-68 after Tet, that um, that the war changes. In fact, Sorley quotes uh, one officer saying, you know, the strategy changed within 15 minutes of Abrams coming on board. And I, I just, I my own research has not led me to the same conclusion. I get it. My sense is that... Um, there was much more continuity between Westmoreland and Abrams. I, I think the challenge for the MACD staff, and I'm, I'm not sure how um, well they were able to kind of step up to this challenge, was was trying to reconceptualize uh, the war um, for it, to, to, to fill a strategy um, or to achieve a strategy laid out by Nixon that we're, we're leaving. Um, and I think there was kind of a lot of intellectual energy that was... Um, was, was argue was somewhat missing among the the MACV staff um, when it, when the decision was made to start withdrawing forces, um, and I, I just think that's a very difficult thing to do to try and not only plan for a withdrawal but also to execute it. And then how do you measure how well you're doing? Um, and, and certainly this this is where I think much of the metrics becomes politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you go into Cambodia, say in 1970 or Laos in 1971, um, the, the progress and the effectiveness of those, or, uh, those operations become politicized. Nixon has to go on TV and say that Cambodia was a success so he can prove that Vietnamization is working so he can then start to withdraw U.S. forces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is very, very difficult for the MACV staff to deal with. And, and Abrams, I think, to his credit, realizes that there are um, you know, all these things are linked together, right? That um, every every soldier that leaves Vietnam um, is going to have an impact not just on military operations, but also on Kissinger's ability at the um, to negotiate in Paris. Um, that Vietnamization is is linked. Um, part and parcel to um, to the military operations, to how well MACV is, is training. Um, and again, I think that's, that problematizes the, um, the measurement piece of this, because now er- if everything is so wholly linked together, um, if one thing changes, how do you measure the impact of that across all these other programs? Right. Let's move away from the upper echelon and operation story. And... Um 
I'm going to ask, how did the body count policy affect individual morale? Mm-hmm. A small unit cohesion over time. Um, I, I think it. Uh, I think what it did was was highlight some of um, um, just the issues that that, that soldiers couldn't reconcile. Um, so I'll, I'll give you one example um, that I mentioned in the book. It's uh, there's this nine day siege of the Pleiku Special Forces camp, which um, is going on in late 1965. And, and after nine days, it's the, the siege is finally lifted. And uh, almost as soon as the siege is lifted, the MACD chief of staff calls down to the the commanding officer of the camp at Pleiku and says he needs an immediate body count for an upcoming briefing. And the major on the ground, his name is Charles Beckwith. Um, he's the commanding officer at the camp. He, he kind of snaps at his radio operator, right? And he says, you know, look, we haven't even been outside of the wire yet. You've got to tell this guy to just get off my back and, and tell him I'll give him a figure and to, um, when, I, when I can count. Um, so he, he refuses to give a, a, a body count until he can actually go outside the wire and count it up. By the time Beckwith actually reports that he has 40 enemy casualties, the figure that's announced in Saigon at the official briefing that day is five times that large. Hmm. So I think what, what, what body counts do um, for American soldiers on the ground is, is kind of highlight to them these, these, these divergences in the war. I mean, one soldier, uh, I thought this was pretty funny, he was a radio operator, and uh, he said he didn't even need a watch when he went to the field because every 15 minutes the commanding officer was getting a call on the radio from his higher-up asking what the body count was. Um, so it, I, I think for soldiers it became difficult for them to kind of reconcile you know, effectiveness with, uh, with something that was just, just seemed ludicrous to them. Um, and it was even difficult. I mean, you had soldiers that um, uh, were in units where they couldn't count bodies accurately because the enemy bodies were dismembered, whether it was because of airstrikes or whatever. Um, and, and officers were accepting individual canteens as a, uh, as a substitute for a body uh, to count. Um, so I, I think that became a bit confusing for soldiers on the ground. <laughs> you concluded in the end. It was a combination of flawed metrics and an institutional inability to articulate its objectives that really dooms the American war effort. Right. I gotta ask, would there have been a could there have been an alternative? I, I don't I don't think so. And um, and the reason I say that is because if um, if you go back and look at the, the nineteen sixty six Honolulu conference and this is where Johnson meets President Two, the South Vietnamese president, and uh, Westmoreland meets with Secretary of State um, Rusk and Secretary of Defense McNamara, they, they kind of lay out their strategic objectives for the year. And, and I think what's problematic is that, um, and this is where I think the history of the Vietnam War is a bit off, that um, the argument that is often made is that the Army under Westmoreland followed a strategy of attrition, that all he cared about was, was killing the enemy. But if you look at this conference and where Westmoreland gets his, his strategic objectives, um, they're so incredibly all-encompassing and wide-ranging that they, it causes confusion. Um, Westmoreland's asked to uh, increase the population living in secure areas by 10%. Uh, okay, that's fine, but what does secure mean? How do you measure that? Mm. He's asked to increase critical roads and railroads for use by 20%. Why 20? Not Why not 25? Why not 30? Um, he's asked to increase the dis- destruction of the enemy base areas by 30% increase the pacified population by 235,000. Again, what does pacified mean? How do you measure it? Why 235,000? Why not 100? Why not 250? He's asked to ensure the defense of the political uh, and population centers under government control. And, oh, by the way, he's asked to uh, trip the, the enemy forces. Um, so with all of those objectives, I think the question then becomes, well, what's your strategy? Yeah. And... And it's confusing for officers on the ground uh, because the, the Mackey is being asked to do all of this. Um, and I think what's more, and, um, and here's where I think he can be a bit, um, he can be criticized. I think just has a very difficult time articulating not only to the Army, but to uh, the Johnson administration and ultimately the public at large of, of what strategy is the Army undertaking to accomplish these very broad objectives. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and each of these objectives has their own host of, of metrics and, and reports, and oftentimes they're not well integrated. They're they're not mutually supporting, um, and it's just ultimately confusing. And I think um, without this ability to kind of articulate what strategy you're going to use to accomplish all of these diverse tasks, um, I, I think you're kind of seeing, I would argue, something similar today in Afghanistan where it's it's just a very confusing conflict. And I think the American public in large, at large is confused about what the overall strategy is because it's just so difficult to articulate um, Mm-hmm. It's multitudinous tasks that the Army is being asked to accomplish. Yeah, that brings me right up to you know, the, the next almost nearly closing question is you know, uh-huh. lessons learned and applying them to our current conflict in Central Asia, mm-hmm. you know, and it really does become an issue of, you know, what is success if you can't articulate it? Right, exactly. You know, which is a dilemma that we're going to be facing. I think it's going to be long term. We just see today in the news reports about the strategic agreement that's been signed that commits us to um, – being in Afghanistan, it appears to 2024. Mm-hmm. So, no, I think it's a problem that they will kind of be long term. Um, because if if you look at some of the more recent um, um, accounts in say the Washington Post or the New York Times, um, it, it really just depends on what column, what day of whether there's positive signs or negative signs in Afghanistan. Right. Um, I mean, it really is. Um, I mean, I've, I've I've seen reports on the same day where you know a reporter from the Washington Post saying that there's all these positive signs in Afghanistan, and on the same day, you know, the former ambassador to Afghanistan, the British former ambassador to Afghanistan, is saying that our tactics and, and strategy are profoundly wrong. Um, so a lot of it, like I think Vietnam. Um, there was an interesting report in Time magazine in 1970. It said, you know, for each good sign, there there can still be found another less hopeful sign. And as a result, every assessment of the war becomes self-contradictory. And I think I would argue that's kind of what we're seeing today. Right. And, of course, we're also in a such a rabid news cycle. Exactly. Right. That is those scandal stories. We have to have the, the crisis of the month, it seems. Right, right, right. Which is certainly counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up, Greg, um, we have our customary last question, which is what's next? Uh, for me? Yeah. Uh, um, what I'm working on next is uh, is a reassessment of American strategy in in, uh, in Vietnam and to kind of confront this um, uh, tr- the traditional argument that's in the literature that, that Westmoreland followed an attrition strategy and because he followed an attrition strategy we lost the war. And what I'd like to argue um, is that it was much more complicated that that Westmoreland is not, um, and the Army at large is not an organization that's constrained culturally to World War II types of operations. Mm-hmm. That they're they're learning about counterinsurgency. They're learning about uh, the interrelationship between politics and war, um, and to to propose that maybe strategy isn't enough to um, good strategy is not enough to win a war. That it, it, there may be a possibility that you can have a an effective strategy and still lose. Um, so I'd like to kind of challenge the traditional um, interpretation of American strategy in Vietnam. So. Well, that's that's good. I mean, I look forward to reading it. I certainly look forward to anything that challenges the the summer sorely perspective. That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, what can I say, Greg? It's been good to talk with you about the project. Well, thank you. And just thank just to reconnect after so long. Uh, good luck in everything you do going forward. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. This is great. Yeah, yeah. On behalf of New Books Military History, thanks for joining us. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. This is New Books in Military History signing off. You've been listening to our interview with Gregory A. Dadis, the author of No Sure Victory, Measuring U.S. Army Effectiveness and Progress in the Vietnam War. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, thanking you for listening to new books in military history.